All right, so our reading this week is kind of the first time that we've started to move out of um, more narrative and story, and we're starting to move into a portion of Scripture that's where the law starts being given. And so we get a whole lot of information that we never knew we needed um, on maybe how you would build a tabernacle in the wilderness as an example. And so there's ground like that that we've covered. And so I wanna give you a sense of this this morning, kind of a way to view that stuff is as we're wrapping up the book of Exodus and we're gonna start moving into Leviticus and Numbers. I I want you to remember something here. Before you get lost in the detail. And, and I would say that the detail actually is valuable and important. There's a lot to be mined from the riches of the detail. But before you get lost in the detail, consider this. We have a group of people who have heard about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and this God. But for 400 years, they've gone from being... 12 brothers with some wives and kids, and they've turned into this massive nation of people. And for that 400-year period, they've lived in someone else's land with someone else's culture and forms of worship. And for most of those years, they've been slaves. And so they have no sense of national identity. They, They truly are like this lost people. And so we've, we've read in the early parts of Exodus how suddenly this God shows up and they're seeing unbelievable things taking place around them and he's bringing them out of this slavery. He's rescuing them from where they've been and he says, hey, I'm, I'm taking you somewhere. I'm gonna bring you to a place where I'm gonna meet with you. You're gonna worship me there and then I'm gonna bring you into the land that's been promised for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so all of these people leave slavery, leave that culture, and now they're just in a wilderness starting over. And so one of the things that can help us is we're reading some of these detailed passages of Scripture where God is, is laying out some laws and giving them some direction. He's even telling them how to worship him. He is helping them establish a completely new identity. When you read Leviticus, imagine that you're reading the Constitution. Like, he's establishing a nation. And this is a nation unlike any other. There is no separation of church and state in this nation. Their God is their king. And so he's teaching them, this is what I am like. This is what's important to me. Hey, guess what? You've been learning for 400 years how not to treat each other from the Egyptians. They were abusive, manipulative, used you, killed your own kids to control you. I want to break you free of that and teach you how to love and serve each other. And so he gets into nitty gritty detail like if your animal hurts that person's animal, here's what you should do. Why? Because they have no structure. They have no legal system. So it might be boring for us to go, I don't get this. But God is establishing a nation. And so that's the significance of what we're reading. And so when you read Ox, instead, think about your livelihood. Think about your possessions. Their livestock is not only how they acquire wealth and provide for themselves, it's, it's also like sustenance. 
It's how they eat and survive. And so if I've invested a lot of time and energy in this, in this animal that is gonna provide for me and then it's gone and it's because my neighbor didn't keep his ox penned up, we gotta do something about this. So does that, does that make sense for you guys? And so kind of map that over to, to our property and, and our jobs and that there are, are laws to protect property. There are laws to help us navigate how we treat each other. Um, there's, there's laws that guide us in ethical business practices. That's what's happening in these pages, all right? So there's a little background for you. Now, um, as this is going, the, the central thing to remember is that God is actually giving them a profound gift. He's giving them a profound gift. He's laying a firm foundation for a new nation. He's establishing to them who he is and who they are. And out of that sense of identity, this is what our God is like, and this is who we are as a people, then they learn this is how we now live. All right, does that make sense? So at, as, as the Lord is starting this process of beginning to communicate with them, here's the first foundation he lays. This is from Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse three. I'm picking up in the middle of the verse. The Lord called to Moses out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So he's saying, hey guys, you watched me show off. I moved mightily on your behalf and I rescued you from something you never thought you could get away from. I'm bringing you out of there. Now, therefore, verse five, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God tells Moses, this is what we're establishing. I'm your God. You're my people. If you want in on this, if you want to walk with me and obey me, I'm going to establish you. I'm going to love you guys. You're going to be my treasured possession. And he's using similar terminology we've already heard in some of the blessing passages that we've looked at in Genesis, where the whole earth was going to be blessed through Abraham. When he's saying, you're going to be like a kingdom of priests, a priest is a representative of God. He's saying, you will be the representative of who I am to a world that needs me. The whole world is mine. I love the whole world. I'm gonna use you guys uniquely to display who I am and what I'm like. And so Moses brings back this information to the people. God wants us to be his treasured possession. Here's what he's like. Here's what he wants to do. And so he calls everybody together in verses seven and eight. And it says, Moses came called the elders of the people, and he set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They said, we're in. <laughs> you brought us out, you rescued us, we're in. And Moses reported the words of the Lord to the people. So here's the deal. This is great news, right? They're rescued, they're out of there. God's got a great plan for them. There's just one problem. It took God a handful of days to get his people out of Egypt. It's now about to take a lifetime to get Egypt out of those people. 
every messy problem, every issue we begin to see unfold over the pages of what we started reading this past week and what we'll be reading moving into the future is these people trying to figure out how to let go of the past and move forward into what God has for them. They're, they're becoming something. They're becoming something. Now, this should sound familiar to us as believers because when Jesus shows up, he rescues us from sin and death and slavery, and he brings us into new life. And so positionally, we're his. We belong to him. Great. So no more problems the rest of our life. We're good, right? No, now the process begins where this new identity and purpose he's given us, it starts to become real. He's, he's forming us and shaping us and growing us. And thank God he's patient. He's patient. And so while this might not seem at first glance as super relatable to us, it's their own ancient version of the road we now walk as followers of Jesus. He loves, he rescues, he redeems. And now he's teaching us what he is like and what it means to be in his family, all right? So this morning, specifically, we're gonna look at three common pitfalls that can rip us off from being established as the people of God, all right? These aren't the only three, but these are three that emerged from our reading this week. Three common pitfalls that can rip us off from being established as God's people, all right? The first issue shows up the very first place we started reading this week, Exodus 16. I'm gonna pick up and just read verses two and three. And the whole congregation, can you guys say whole congregation? All right, so it was pervasive. It wasn't like there was this random guy over here having a rough day. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. That's on my list for Super Bowl eating tonight. I just, I don't know what a meat pot is, but I, that's what I want. If I can just have a giant meat pot in my lap, that would be great. Um, so they're like, man, we miss that. Whatever that is, they miss it. Isn't it funny how we do that? We remember the good part of what we've left behind and forget the whole, like, we were in slavery, they were killing our children. I just want the meat pot, man, come on. So they're remembering when their bellies were full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Guys, they're weeks from watching the Red Sea go whoosh. They're weeks from that. And they're out here. They, in fact, they've already seen God take bitter water when they had nothing to drink and make it sweet so they could drink it. So they've already seen him provide water when there seemed to be no way for that. And yet the whole congregation already is complaining, grumbling, frustrated. Guys, this is a human problem. And one of the reasons it's such a big problem is it's really easy to fall into Complaining always starts small. I, I find this thing that I'm not happy about that's not working for me and I get frustrated and I begin to verbalize that frustration. But I'm telling you, you can follow a direct line. A complaining mouth 
unchecked waters the seeds of bitterness. And so a complaining mouth will create this, this, this bitterness that will begin to grow in our, in our hearts. And if we foster bitterness for long enough and it becomes fully grown, it creates a hard heart. Think about where Pharaoh ended up. And they're saying, we wanna go back to that. When we are so consumed with the immediate frustration, the immediate need, and instead of turning and asking for help, like there's nothing wrong with expressing, I'm in trouble. In fact, God encourages that. Cry out to me, ask for help. Even here, he ends up helping them, even though it started with complaining. But if, if we accept this mentality of complaining and we let that permeate us, it will grow into bitterness and it will harden our hearts. And a wall will be created between us and God. This is a reality of life. We, instead, we have to foster an attitude that says, God, I'm, I'm grateful for who you are and what you've done. And so I develop an attitude that's able to remember more than just this moment that I'm in. And I, I don't mean to minimize the moments. There, there are moments in life that are hard and difficult. And before we know it, they go from being a moment to being a month and months. I get it. I, I don't mean to minimize difficulty. They're about to spend 40 years in the wilderness. That's no treat. But God loves them and he's gracious to them and he wants to provide for them. And so when things are going bad, what he wants us to do is not turn over here into grumbling, moaning, and complaining. He wants us to turn to him and cry out for help. God, this hurts. I'm stuck. This is difficult. I need help. And to seek him. And so the solution to this problem, the solution to complaining, is instead to develop a mindset of gratitude. Now, this is what actually transpired the chapter before. They just got rescued from Egypt and they stop and they sing a celebratory song. I encourage you to read through the whole thing, but just a couple verses this morning to give us a sense of this. Exodus chapter 15, verse two. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him my father's God, and I will exalt him. They're singing a reminder of who God is, what he's like, and saying, he's my God. He's not just this distant idea that's out there, or he's not just Troy's God, he's my God. I've taken him as my own, and so I'm reminding myself who he is, what he's like. And they even reflect back on their forefathers. What's the idea there? seeing more than just this moment. If I'm able to look back at the faithfulness of God over the course of my life, over the course of history and what he's done, and then he promises to be with me right here, right now, and he also says, I've got a plan for you that lasts not just a lifetime, but forever. And they begin to sing about that, verse 17. You will bring them in. That's talking about them being brought out of Egypt and now being brought into a new land. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, 
which your hands have established. And the Lord will reign forever and ever. What can help us develop gratitude when we're in a season that feels like it calls for complaining is to reflect back on the faithfulness of God. Remember our salvation. Remember his rescue and his hand in our life. And look ahead to the fact that he has that he is an eternal God that has forever purposes for us. And in that, we can find the words to say, God, you're good. I love you and I worship you and I remember who you are. You know, if I'm, I was gonna say radio, but maybe iPod, not even iPod anymore, iPhone. If I'm gonna listen to some music... <laughs> Usually, if I'm listening to a song I like, I don't sit in the car and just sort of nod and go, I really agree with what those lyrics are saying. That's a solid point. There's some, there's some good truth in there. What do I do when I'm singing a song I really like? I sing along, not well, but joyful. I sing along, I engage, I participate. The idea behind this song, the idea behind worshiping in music is that I engage all of myself and express gratitude. I mean, Alex, I don't know if you'd seen my notes or whatever this morning, but like what you were talking about this morning is, is it. Like we, gratitude has to be expressed. I need to say it. I need to declare thank you. I need to say I love you. I appreciate you. Gratitude needs to be expressed. And so we take time to engage and say, God, I'm gonna sing about your goodness. God, I'm gonna declare how wonderful you are. I'm not just gonna, gonna sit back and go, I know you're good. I say it. I mean, when I complain, I'm using my mouth. When I stub my toe in the garage, I don't just think things in my head. Things come out of this mouth that I typically regret and hope my kids aren't too close by. Right? I have no problem expressing anger, frustration, complaining. Well, in the same way, we need to verbalize gratitude and truth. It does something to us when we engage our full selves. And so the solution to complaining is to develop gratitude and that it would be quick on our lips, all right? Now, in the midst of their complaining, God still shows up because he's faithful and good, and he provides a solution to their problem. And he, he brings about this manna, which just simply means, what is it? <laughs> what is this stuff? He, he brings about this bread from heaven, this provision for them. And so he goes on to say, here's what I'm gonna do. Every morning, there's gonna be bread available for you. Every evening, there's gonna be meat, there's gonna be quail, and I'm gonna provide for your physical needs. And for as long as you are in this wilderness and aren't able to establish yourself in the land, I will be providing you with daily bread. One stipulation, only collect what you need for today. Don't save it. In fact, if you save it, it's gonna get ugly. All right, so that's his declaration. So here's what happens. Exodus 16, verse 19. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and it stank. 
I love that stank as a Bible word now. It stank. And Moses was angry with them. (laughs) It seems so simple, right? Just trust God. You're going to walk outside every day. There's the provision that you need. Just pick it up and you got what you need for today and don't worry about tomorrow. Simple, easy. Just trust God for his provision. I would never do what they did and decide I'm nervous and I'm not sure if it'll really show up tomorrow and maybe I can begin to save some and stock it away. And I'm not enough of a control freak to feel like I need to do that. But they did. Now, I I know I would have been one of the people doing this. And so they had a hard time trusting and believing for the next day. And so they gathered. Okay, the story continues along. Moses is like, hey guys, hold on. I told you not to do that. Stop doing that. Not only do you not have to worry and save it up, but guess what? This really cool thing is gonna happen. God wants to give you a weekend. And so he wants you to rest. And so on the sixth day of the week, there's gonna be double. And by some miracle of God, he will double up what you get on the sixth day. And it's the one day where it will last whole extra day so that on the seventh day you'll slow down and you'll rest because I want to provide you with what you need daily and I want to provide you with the rest that you need and so this is my command to you so surely the people learned their lesson right didn't work anyways we collected extra it stank now we get a day off this is great verse uh, chapter 16 verse 25 so Moses said eat it today for today is a sabbath to the lord Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. And verse 27, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. (laughs) And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Even when they're commanded to take a day off and trust God, they can't do it. Now, this might seem like a silly story to you or me, but if there's one thing I've learned about myself at least, I have a strong need to control things. I have a strong need to try to arrange my life in a certain way so that everything is nice and neat and in order and just the way I like it. And I, I, like, I like to eliminate my need to, you know, have faith. It's easier if things are ordered and settled, and together. And so what I actually do, even if it's not intentional, is I try to create circumstances where I no longer need God by controlling. The second pitfall to being established as the people of God is taking control that belongs to him. And here's the deal. It doesn't work anyways. We will strive and wear ourselves out to the bone and it doesn't work. Y'all, this, this was me. Like when I left here last Sunday, I didn't know it yet, but this was me. And God lovingly and gently all week long was reminding me, hey buddy, Jake, control freak, <laughs> you need to trust me each day for what I have for you today and it'll be all right. I spent more time laying things down this week and got more done than I've gotten done in the last month because God provides. And he even gives that double portion so we can get the rest he knows that we need. He made us to be able to rest in him and trust.
And so in our striving, in our control, and our fight for that to arrange all of our circumstances. And listen, this can get ugly. Like, I don't just try to control my circumstances. Sometimes I'm trying to control and manipulate the very grace of God. Because if I'm dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's and doing all the stuff, then somehow he's obligated to show up when I need him to do the thing I expect him to do. That's not how it works. The antidote to control is surrender. It's surrender. Surrender is faith in action. God, I'm, I'm actively willing to lay down my need to control to trust that you will provide. Now, when we surrender, it doesn't mean we do nothing. He didn't say, wake up in the morning and sit down at the table and the bread is gonna magically appear right in front of you. You're gonna go out, you're gonna gather, you're gonna cook it. You have a part to play. We work with him. It's just sometimes we can be bad about nudging him out of the way and trying to do it ourselves. And he's wanting to teach us, no, walk with me, learn to trust me, give up your need to control, surrender and watch what I'll do. Watch how my grace provides. All right. It finally started to sink in. Moses talks to the people now in verse 29. See, exclamation point. I love that. Behold, pay attention. Guys, wake up. God is offering you something really good. You don't have to complain. You can enjoy his goodness. You don't have to control things. You can trust him to provide. See, pay attention. The Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Man, that I could, I could begin to learn to lay down my need to control and to trust God to provide. All right, number three. The huge danger that seems probably the most extreme and weird to us that we would never do is the story found in Exodus chapter 32. So what's happened up to this point is God has now established some core things for them, including giving them the Ten Commandments. They've received all of that. They've agreed to all of it. And so Moses has now gone back up one more time to spend time with God, and he's getting the layout for the place they're gonna gather and worship. That's what we needed to do, was get away and get the layout. We would have been better off if we'd done that. Yeah, all right. They got the layout. Here's how you're gonna lay out the tabernacle, the place where you come worship me. So God's up there doing that. They've, they've said yes and agreed to all of these things God's inviting them into. He's laid out their law, the law. Now, Moses is gone for 40 days, all right? So they've had 40 days with the Ten Commandments and this God that they've agreed to follow. For 40 days, bread has showed up every day for them to eat, quail at night for them, for them to eat. Um, I think it's interesting that they were craving meat pots and bread and they were given bread and meat. God was providing for them. And so in the midst of that, Moses has been gone now up on the mountain and things get crazy real fast. And so now in Exodus 32, verse one, it says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, 
up. Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Seems crazy, doesn't it? 40 days. That's all it's been. 40 days, and they're still watching bread show up every day. How could they do this? And then a golden calf, what's the appeal there? See, that's part of our problem is when we project ourselves back into history, we don't get it. Here's what they're doing. Number one, I can't say this 100%, but a lot of scholars agree with this idea. Um, I'm about to read the first portion of the Ten Commandments to you. Many scholars believe that they weren't actually rejecting the God of heaven. They weren't breaking commandment number one, which says, you shall have no other gods before me. They were breaking commandment two, which says, make no graven image. They were settling for a lesser God, a God that they could fashion and control that could bring them some form of comfort a God they could wrap their head around. They were settling for that because the passage says, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. And if we kept reading, it said their plan was to have a feast and sacrifice to the Lord the next day. They're they're settling for a false image of God. That's the point that we need to get. They're settling for a false image of God. And how are they doing that? They are taking the things that are valuable to them to form this, and they're learning from the culture that they've lived in. They have lived in Egyptian culture. This image of this calf was one of the gods they would worship in Egypt. It was familiar to them. And so they took what they knew from the culture, and they took what was valuable and important to them, and put that on the God of heaven and said, here's what he's like, and we can wrap our heads around this. And so they crafted a God in the image of their culture and of their making, and that's where they were wrong. This is is an important issue to God, to be aware of how our culture can creep in on us and bring undue influence. Remember, they are being established as the people of God. And what they're doing is they're looking back and they're looking around and drawing from what they can see and saying, this is God. Instead of trusting what God has said, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. This is what it means to follow me. And so let's read these first few things that God says about himself as he's establishing the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. Are you catching that? When they built the image, they said, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt and slavery. 
But actually, God gave them these tablets of stone that said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and slavery. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, whatever we think about why he would say that, at the very least, he's saying, I want you to grab hold of what's real. I am the real God. I am the true and living God. Don't settle for counterfeits. Don't settle for partial versions of me. Don't settle for what man can come up with and create in his own brilliance. I alone am God. I'm the God who made you, and I'm the God who rescued you. Come know me. Come follow me. Cooperate with reality. I'm the only real God, and so you'll have no other gods before me. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the sea, including calves. I, I threw that part in. Verse five, you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God is saying that accurate representation of who he is is essential in that when we reject God or settle for a lesser than image of God, we are doing great harms to ourselves and our generation and generations to come. Guys, as, as a longtime youth pastor, let me just tell you, one of the biggest obstacles that those high school kids faced was not from just the world around them. It was from how God had been misrepresented to them in some form or some way from church or parents or whoever. It's essential that we give as clear of a picture of who God is as we possibly can. I believe one of the main reasons our culture is rejecting Christianity and rejecting God is because we're not giving them an accurate picture of what he's like. He's a good, loving God. He's faithful and true. He's gracious. He's right. He brings justice. And when we misrepresent him, it does great harm. And that harm echoes out for generations. And so God's saying, this is serious stuff. You're gonna do damage in your own life and in the lives of your kids if you settle for something other than the real me. He's not up there, this weak God going, well, man, I'm just super jealous of Ra right now. Egypt seems to be pretty pumped with him. It's not petty jealousy. He's saying, guys, this is going to destroy you. You need to know me, the real God for who I am. And so I need to be reflected accurately. So what's, what's this third problem? If I'm going to give it a name, it's compromise. It's compromise. I don't just mean compromising our behavior, although that's part of it. I mean turning to the culture that we live in, that we're surrounded in, and letting that be the thing that influences us above all else. And letting our culture dictate what God is like. 
And if you don't think that's a real issue for us today, you're missing it. We're surrounded by golden calves. We've settled for changing God into the image we prefer. We're letting our culture tell us what love is instead of letting the God who says, I am love at my core, teach us what love is. And so we settle and compromise for counterfeits. And we decide, I'm gonna craft and shape my own God. I'm not talking about people outside of the church, guys. I'm talking to us. We are in danger of picking and choosing the aspects of God that we prefer and settling for a partial view of what he's like. He can't be wrapped up in one single image. He's infinite. He's all-knowing. He's all-encompassing. He's eternal. And he says that he is love and he is light and he is good and he is merciful and he is faithful and he is just. And so he says, come to me and learn from me what I'm like and I will establish you as my people. And the more you, you come to know the real me, you will have hearts of gratitude because you'll see who I am and what I'm like. And the more you come to know the real me, you're gonna be happy to give up control because it's gonna be awesome learning to just trust in me and my goodness to know I've got you. And you're not gonna wanna settle for compromising. You're gonna wanna be pure because when you see what I'm like, you'll wanna be around that and you'll want to become more like that. The reality is, instead of us creating God in our image, we're supposed to let him make us into his image. That's what purity and holiness is all about. It's not about trying really hard on our own to be good. It's about getting around the God who is set apart and unique and amazing and getting around him and letting that identity of who he is get all over us. Let me go spend time with the God that's like that. And I'll want the pure, unadulterated love of God instead of settling for some lie that the culture sells me that doesn't satisfy anybody anyways. When we look at American culture, do we think that's a happy group of people? Those are some satisfied, at-peace people who figured out how to navigate life in a, a healthy way and they love each other well and they're at peace with who they are and how they've been made and they, they're, they're, they're great in their relationships with one another and they just seem to live with a sense of peace and purpose, and joy, and life. Is that what you see when you look at our culture? But it's exactly what God says he wants to do in his people. In fact, he says it's the automatic byproduct of his presence. How does God make us holy? He gives us himself. I'm gonna go off book here and wrap this up. Scholars believe, and in fact, we see this celebrated, that the Passover, the Passover lamb, the night that they were eventually set free from Egypt, that is the same night Jesus was taking the Passover with his disciples and goes on to lay down his life for us as the Passover lamb. If you fast forward 
to the, the celebration of Pentecost, that's the day Moses first went up on the mountain to be with God, to be given the law, the Ten Commandments. It's the same day that the church was born when on the day of Pentecost, faithful people who'd been gathered in a room praying and said, okay, Jesus, you told us not to go anywhere without your spirit. We watched your death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and you've called us to share this life with people and invite them into your family, but you said, don't go without me. So we're gonna stay in this room till your spirit shows up. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and fell on just some normal, everyday people who had an encounter with God and his love. And on that day, the church was born and 3,000 people gave their lives to Jesus. And now fast forward 2,000 years, we're sitting in a room here today. You can't tell me that's coincidence. God established his people on that holy mountain by telling them who he was and what he was like. Through Jesus, we have the ability to be brought near, to be purified and cleansed and rescued from sin and slavery and the culture that is crumbling around us and step into a new community where God is king and where his spirit shows up and his spirit gives us life. Paul writes in Galatians and he says, the works of the spirit what the Spirit produces, this fruit that he brings, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He says one more thing at the end of it. And against such, there is no law. You wanna be right and at peace with God? Come to him. Say, God, I, I, wanna, be, I wanna be one of your people. I wanna try, trade a life of complaining and controlling and compromising. I'm sick of that. God, I want you in your purest form. Who are you? What are you like? Maybe I can't wrap my head around that today. Maybe I won't even fully wrap my head around that for the rest of my life. But God, I want to draw near to you and learn who you are and what you're like. And more and more, I want my life to be defined by you. Teach me what love is all about. Teach me what you're like. Develop in me a heart of gratitude, a heart of surrender. God, develop in me a pure heart instead of a compromising heart. That's what worship is. So the Ten Commandments were all about learning to love well. I'm gonna close with this verse. This is Jesus reflecting back on the law that was given. Some guy comes up to him in Matthew 22, verse 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Let who he is permeate your life. Absorb it into your mind. Take it into your heart. Let your eyes behold him. Engage your body. Worship. Gratitude out loud. Engage yourself in worship, learning to love God more and more. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. Everything God was doing to teach this people how to be a new nation 
was about learning to know and love God and learning how to love each other well. And now Jesus has come and wants to do that miracle in our hearts. And he's given us his spirit and his presence to change us, to make us more and more in his image. Let's pray. God, I, I admit that in any given week, I'm, all, I'm struggling with all three of these things at once. God, I, I get lost in the moment, complaining, frustrated. Lord, I definitely struggle with wanting to control things. And God, I, I compromise. I turn to things apart from you, or I, I settle for versions of you that I feel like I can control. And God, I'm sorry. Lord, I, I want to be your kid, your son. Lord, I wanna see you more and more clearly for who you really are. I want that for myself, for my children. God, for our church family here. Lord, Knoxville needs to see you for who you really are. God, in you is where hope is found and nowhere else. But Lord, it starts right here in my heart today. And so, Lord, I, I choose to trade complaining in for gratitude. Thank you for your faithfulness in my life. Thank you for being with me today and for securing my future. God, I choose to lay down control and surrender. I'm tired of trying to control and manipulate things. God, I'm ready to cooperate with you and let you be the king. Lord, I'm sorry where I've compromised. I've accepted false versions of who you are. Lord, would you purify me as I get around you, the holy God? God, I thank you that this is what you had to say about who you are. I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. God, I thank you that you're merciful, gracious, loving, faithful, and just. It's in Jesus' name we pray this morning. Amen.